Acts chapter 14, verses 27 and 28 says, On arriving there, they, Paul and Barnabas, gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. It starts off by saying, they gathered the church together. And the reason this verse is interesting is because you clearly cannot gather a building together. This can only be describing people. This may be a newsflash for some of you, but the church has always been about people. Four people, 40 people, 400 people, 4,000 people. It makes no difference. Wherever the people are, that's where the church is. The building is to the church what the body is to the spirit. It only resides there. It is never to be confused for being the thing itself. Maybe the confusion stems from how we talk about the church. Where do you go to church? At our church, we have awesome worship. Did you hear they're building a new church over at Impact? I'm sure this is where the breakdown occurs. When this is how you define it, you confine it. The church is not a place, and for the record, it's not a person. It is a people. We gather today not at impact, but as impact. Buildings are torn down and burnt to the ground, but the Bible says even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. You can shut up the doors, but you cannot shut up the heart. Regardless of what happens to the property, the church moves on. The church gathers together weekly to share in God's greatness. It's not a monument to gather under, it's a movement to get caught up into. When the church gathers and unites, there is no stopping it. It will accomplish the purpose that Jesus died to perpetuate in the world. And that is why we gather today, as impact. Because no building will ever define us or confine us. No prescription or description will hold us inside four walls. This is worship without walls. This is movement without measurement. This is people without property. This is God's church, and we are impact. Isn't that so cool? It's hard to believe that was uh, 10 years ago. Um, that was Leslie uh, Canfield at the time. She was not McCracken, and she was on our creative arts team. And um, now she has three children, three little girls, had twins, and uh, lives here in Lowell with her husband, Josh. They've been to Azerbaijan as missionaries and have come back. I mean, so much has taken place in the last nine years, but it's almost like those words are prophetic, like they could have been written like this last week. And yeah, that was nine years ago. And what's interesting is that, that uh, piece of, of writing that she read actually was something that I wrote for uh, a service we did at Fellsburg Park where we basically took the whole church and we left uh, the building that weekend and we went over and had a picnic and had church at the park in 2007. How many were here when we went to Fallsburg Park in 2007? And it was somewhat of a radical idea. There was just massive pushback. People did not understand, like, we have to gather at the church for it to actually be church. 
and there was emails, and there was, you know, the pastor's equivalent of hate mail that was coming. It was almost like not having the cross last week. I don't think there was any more a scuttlebutt that took place in our church as if we were abandoning the cross because this wooden thing didn't come over. And, and as much as I love the cross and, and, and wearing a cross and seeing a cross, the idea of the cross even, I think it's misunderstood that the physical cross becomes some icon that is enshrined throughout all time that somehow biblically we're supposed to be having crosses in our buildings or they're not like biblically sound around the gospel. I'm all for the cross. We brought it out just because I don't want to get any email this week. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you if that cross was there or not there, it doesn't mean this church doesn't believe in the power of the cross. The idea is that Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6, I glory in the cross of Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He loved the cross, but he wasn't talking about the actual cross. I think it's debatable whether Jesus would have ever in his wildest dreams would have imagined this cruel cross of torture. It's like somebody taking an electric chair and making that like the pinnacle of their faith and hanging it around their necks and putting it around their homes. This is like execution, and we love the cross, and we glory in the cross, but the physical cross, it, it, it's not some like lucky magic foot, that rabbit's foot that you hang around your neck. It's going to do nothing just because you have a, a cross in your home or a cross in every room that does not cleanse every room. That cross has no power other than the power of the cross that Jesus hung on because his blood was shed for the remission of sins. Does that make sense? We get so confused because as human beings, we want physical things we can touch and see to, to, to attach our affection to. And this is why right in the beginning of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, there's going to be no other gods before you and you should make no graven images. And graven images, Christians can make graven images as well and attach their affections to buildings and to things and to, to items as icons and enshrine them like they have some sort of power in and of themselves. And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. Stick with worshiping me in spirit and in truth. And so I, I remember writing back in 2007 what she read and the idea was to move our church at the time out of the building in order to break our bond to the building as the church, seeking instead to teach this radical idea that the church is a people. It's not a place. It's not a property. And that it's the body. It's not the building. We don't want to get walled in. We wanted our worship to go beyond the walls, and we still do to this day. I love that verse, Acts 14, 27. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. The church is a they and a them. It's not a this or that or a there. And I love that verse because you can't gather the building together. This can only be describing People, the church has always been about people, four, 40, 400, 4,000. Wherever the people are, that's where the church is. And we do get confused, and our confusion stems from where do you go to church, and their church has rockin' worship. In fact, there was a person that came this last week, and we are about 
on Indeed Church people. If you're here from another church, you've been looking for church and you've been in Lurch, but not in church for a long time, welcome out of Lurch into the body of Christ, into church. But last week, somebody that wasn't really a part of the church ever was so surprised at the worship. And, and they came to me the next week and they said, your band is so badass. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I love reaching people like that, that they don't know how to clean up yet. And sometimes I don't know whether I want them to clean up and get all churchy. I just want to hear from their hearts. Do you know God knows our hearts and that our lips, he even said this, you worship with me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And I think some people, they don't necessarily worship him well with their lips, but their hearts are close to him. And we just want to make sure that people don't get addicted to the wrong stuff and start to define this stuff in a certain way that confines the church and, in essence, God. It's not a place, and for the record, it's not a person. It's a people. Your church can't be you in like a deer stand. That's my church. No, because the church isn't a person. It's a people. It's gathering with the body. You're just a finger. You're just a mole on my butt. Yeah, it's the part of the body that you are maybe, but you're all essential. I don't know where that came from, but that we all have significant and insignificant roles to play in the body of Christ. One time somebody called me the butthole of the body of Christ, and that was, uh, I was at a man camp, and... Uh, some of you are like, I'm never going to man camp, ever. But sometimes those things happen at man camp. That was actually a guy by the name of Travis. I'll never forget that. I was offended. <laughs> this, uh, this building, this is just a space. You are the spirit that fills the space. Has anybody driven by our building um, that was over on 1070 North Hudson? You, you drive by and it's like, I can't believe just a few weeks ago we were there and that was our home. And I've been in it and it, it reminds me of when my, my grandpa died when he was 94. I remember going up to the casket and looking into the casket and it was very clearly my grandpa and it was very clearly my grandpa was gone. Like my grandpa's body was there but his spirit was gone. And when I go into that building, it's just a building now. It's like a corpse. It's like the spirit is gone. And now the edifice remains. This is just space. Without you, it's like a space without the spirit. It's like a body without blood or breath. Your blood and your breath is what creates this body. And this is just a place we inhabit as the body of Christ. I remember when I was a child, we had this little chant that the incantation of this chant is still in my mind that we would say in Sunday school, and I believe it's when you're three or four years old, um, because my girls actually learned this even here at Impact and Kid Zone, and it had motions to it as well, and you would put your fingers together on the inside like this, not on the outside like you're praying, but on the inside, and uh, it's not like this, like, <laughs> did anybody's dad teach them to do that? Um, <laughs> But like you put them together like this 
And then there, there was this phrase, and it went like this. Here is the church. Here is the steeple. Open the doors, and here's all the people, or there's all the people. And so you're like, oh, there's the church. There's the steeple. Open the doors, and there's the people. And I remember my daughters came home, and I actually, this is sort of what it is, like right here. This is how you do it if you want to do it at home. I just want to... <laughs> I just want to rearrange it for you. When my daughters were 11 and 9 and 7, they came home and they were showing me that. And I'm like, that is so theologically incorrect, though. It's heresy you just learned at Kid Zone today. And uh, so I remember I was like, okay, put your fingers in like this. This is what it's really supposed to be biblically. Here is the building. And here is the steeple, if your church even has one. And you open the doors and here's all the church. Here's the building, here's the steeple, open the doors, and here's all the church. This isn't the church and these are the people. This is the building and these people constitute the church. So from an early age, there's these misnomers that we just kind of adopt as gospel truth. And there's a passage in the New Testament that kind of exposes this radical and um, theological idea in Acts 17. It's a great place for this to be exposed. The church had been around for well over 10 years. Some would think in 15 or 17 years after Christ's ascension. And Paul was speaking in Athens, specifically Mars Hill or the Areopagus. This is where the philosophy philosophical people would gather and the academia would gather and the intelligentsia would gather and they would float around the newest ideas of the day. And he went there and there was a synagogue there and a marketplace there and it was hopping. It was a place of commerce and spirituality. In fact, it was a place of some of the most amazing temples that you can go to this day and you can see the remnants of these temples. The temple of Zeus was there. The Olympia is there. there there's the, the, the Parthenon is there. Right now in Greece, you can go to Athens and see the remnants of these amazing structures. And you can see how people would see what Rome was putting together and become so enamored with these things. They're like, that building is so amazing. And, and to this day, throughout the ages people have been building buildings basilicas that are beautiful if you've ever been to a basilica in Europe it's, it's just beautiful if you've ever been to a cathedral it's meant to open up your heart so you have an awe for God I'm not against those but if you go over to these places, all they are is is for tourism now the church is gone these places are just edifices that the government subsidizes and keeps open for people to be just taking selfies next to. And so he goes in, and, and some of these places were being built, you know, B.C. and weren't even finished till like 123. I went to Rome, and I got to see the Pantheon, one of the seven world wonders, and it used to be a pagan temple. Like, this was all over the place, and people attached a deity to a temple. And Christians did the same thing because they wanted to copy the power of Rome in that day. And so Paul comes in and he shares this radical idea. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if 
He needs anything, for he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. All men, life and breath. All women, life and breath and everything else. He introduces a few seismic shifts to the idea of church. The first being God, our deity, our God does not live in temples built by human hands like that over there and that over there. And I know the church is fighting to try to copy what is seen as powerful and majestic and awe-inspiring, but the awe-inspiring thing of the church is our God doesn't live in a place like that. He lives in the human heart. See, when I grew up, along with learning little hand motions and, and heretical little things in Sunday school, we also had phrases that were thrown out when we would run in church or chew gum in church. The, what, what would your parents say to you? You can't run in church. This is, this is God's house. Some of you grew up in a tradition where you couldn't actually work or do anything fun because it was what? God's day. There's God's day. There's God's house. When you go to God's house on God's day, you wear what? <laughs> Your Sunday best. Wow, you guys know what's up. We, did we grow up in the same church? No, this was just propagated like seed throughout all of America. As if all you have to do for an hour and 15 minutes is wear your best, and then the rest of the week, you don't have to be your best, wear your best, do your best, think your best. You do not have to live as the temple of God anywhere else because this is God's house, this is God's time, and this is where you wear God's clothes. And it's pretty awesome because when you leave, God stays in his house and you get to have the rest of the week to just go rogue. I'll tell you in a second why we like that. Second is God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. That, that struck me as odd until I studied it a little bit because it's like God is served by human hands and he, we do minister for him as his hands and his feet. But what he's saying here is no longer is there like revered places and revered people who do all the serving that you look at these people and you're like, oh, they must be a prophet or they must be an apostle or they must be one of the 12 disciples or they must be a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a Levite or a part of the Sanhedrin. They must be a preep. I'm t a preep, preep. That's a creep and a priest at the same time. Sorry about that. But I'm gonna tell you something. The Pope isn't your hope and the pastor ain't your master. And we have some sort of idea that just because I'm on a stage and a platform and I'm a preacher that somehow I have special access and I have special power. I do not. I have nothing more or less than you have. I have the same Holy Spirit filling my spirit and I'm a child of God and he has called me to share his word and I do so with Tremble, trembling and I do this with, with a lot of fear and trepidation, but we are all oracles of God. And he says, no longer are just certain people going to serve as the people you look to as the ministers of the gospel. Because here's the third radical idea. Everyone is going to be given life and spirit or breasts. Breasts. 
Can I get an amen? amen. Well, guys, we'll use the uh, Saturday service for uh, online. <laughs> yeah. I hear yes down here by Dan Rogers. I need to get him on the record. Um, where in the world was I? God has given everyone life and breath and everything else. Oh, church is so good today that everyone gets to be a part of this, that your house becomes God's home, that your body becomes God's home, that the earth and heaven and everything under it is God's home. And he isn't living in certain places and served by certain people, but he is unleashed to everyone, everywhere, the, the ability to do everything that he has called us to do. I think that's so powerful. And he breaks us from the bonds and the bondage of thinking of the church as a building. He actually told the church in Corinth, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And that's powerful. It's, he doesn't live in the Holy of Holies anymore. That you become the Holy of Holies. He isn't like in there with the Ark of the Covenant, with the seraphim, the special anointed Shekinah glory of God inhabits the human heart. You become the Ark of the Covenant and you are carried about to your neighborhood and your street and your family and your marriage and your workplace. We're the temple of God himself who abides and resides and presides inside our human heart. And they were like, you're, you're kidding me. Yeah, and you were bought with a price, a high price, that Christ, the only begotten of the Father, was given by his own Father as the first fruits to be crucified for you. You are bought at a high price. Even though salvation is free for us, it didn't mean it didn't cost anything. It came at a great price. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I think the reason why we, we like to sort of segregate or compartmentalize Christianity into God's house and, and the Lord's day is so that we can have Monday through Saturday and that when we leave this place, we're kind of on our own. We don't need to think about the idea that we're the carriers of God. We're the ambassadors of God. So we can just go home and watch whatever we want on Netflix without this idea that Jesus is watching Netflix with us. That when we watch Game of Thrones that you're with God and you've invited him to watch that with you. And it kind of weirds you out when you're watching certain things or doing certain things or saying certain things when you can't leave God here to just play, you know, instruments and go into the counseling room for the rest of the week and wander around, twiddle his thumbs until you come back to see him for an hour and 15 minutes. He doesn't stick around here for the rest of the week. He's going and he's doing and being whatever you're going to do and be and think and say. You become the very representation of Christ. I think that's why we like to keep him in places like this. 
and to not think of ourselves in this new covenant, in this new way that God ushered in as someone who is inside the temple of our body. This idea, it caused me to think back and remember in 2014, we had a theme for the year and it was the church has left the building. And it was a way for us to say, how can we get out on the streets? How can we make a difference in Lowell and beyond in our communities? Help us not to think of the church as being in the building. The church is going to leave the building in about another 30 to 40 minutes, and we're going to trickle out of here, and this place is going to be empty. But I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be God here and you out there. He's going with you because he's in you. And the church has to leave the building that concept has been at the heart of our church since I can remember. I remember when our family first moved to Lowell and I heard the story of the church railing together and painting a neighbor's house that was across the street uh, from the property that we used to be at. I remember thinking that's just unheard of in any church that I'd ever been a part of. I remember a group of men rallying together and raising money to help a brother get much needed dentures as his teeth deteriorated in his mouth and it raised like $3,500 for this guy to get dentures. I remember a guy in our church giving his car to a guy who just got out of jail and was visiting our church from Guiding Light in GR. First time he came to church, he just gave him his car. I remember a group of people going to prison every week just to meet with guys who didn't have a family and needed people to talk to that they knew cared for them. I remember when somebody had this dream for a thing called Love Week when we would cover Lowell with tangible acts of kindness and gestures of care and compassion. And every year that dream has blossomed into really what we're known for in the Lowell community if you don't attend this church. They don't know what's going on in here and a lot of them don't care, but they know when that happens and they rely on it. I remember someone paying for plane tickets for somebody who was visiting their dying loved one. Not just once, not just twice, but three times and two other people gave them their flight miles. And then another person paid for all their expenses once they got there for a few days. That's just the church being the church. They're not calling our office, hey, can I do this? Or hey, do we have a benevolence fund? It's like, hey, you can do this stuff. You're called by God to have an impulse or sense God's speaking to you and act on that, that instinct. I remember someone putting a wheelchair ramp on their neighbor's house after they'd gotten in a life-altering accident and they didn't go to church anywhere, but they rallied guys together to do that. Remember a group of guys tearing off this sort of mangled, weathered uh, roof that was on someone's house and re-roofing the whole thing at no cost with no strings attached. And I want to say this has happened no less than four times than I know of since I've been here. I remember several baptisms we've done for people who are dying of cancer and on hospice in their homes. I remember a dream a group of people had to get into our local schools, our elementary schools, and come alongside kids who are at risk and mentor them academically and emotionally and relationally through Kids Hope. How many have been a part of Kids Hope in here and have, yeah, come alongside a kid? I can see some hands around here. Remember when that dream kind of came true and we still do that to this day. I remember this last year, a group of people paying for the legal fees for a single mom who was potentially gonna lose her kids and go to jail for a year if she didn't pay nearly $20,000 of fines from her life before she knew Christ. 
And people in this church rallied and raised all the funds, all of the funds for the best lawyer we could have so that she could pay her bills and keep her family together. It wasn't like we're gonna go to the church, it's, it's we're gonna be the church. And I could, I could just go on and on with stories of the church being the church, not just going to church. Acts 17, in the context of the passage I shared earlier in verse 24 and 25, it shares some things that I think was a great migration of mission, even as Paul was showing us by his life how he lived out the gospel as a part of the church. It says, the God who made everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Before I go into that context, I wanted to bring something up. Because I think there's some ideas and words that need to be reclaimed and redefined. Some that came to my mind as church, what we've been talking about today, a building that you go to every weekend to sing songs and hear a message, or the church as a body of people who live out the life of Jesus every day, of the week. And you have worship. And worship is known in the church as songs you sing to God every weekend before the sermon, right? But worship really is every word and thought and feeling and deed humbly offered to God to bring him glory each day of the week. It says in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That you don't have to play an instrument to have a good voice to sing in order to worship God. Your life can be an act of worship as a living sacrifice to him. Missionaries, people called to go to other countries to share the gospel with unreached nations. When really we're all missionaries called to go across the street or the room to share the good news once we become an ambassador of Christ. Serving just volunteering for the church, helping in a regular ministry program. So how can I serve at the church? But serving so much bigger. It's looking for ways to responsively meet people's felt needs everywhere you go. Fellowship. When I was growing up, it was like once a month we had fellowship dinner on Sunday night. And that was when we fellowship and we ate together. It's a gathering together as the church for a special event where there's food present. It's what I thought it was growing up. Where fellowship in the Bible is so much deeper, it's intentionally getting together with people to encourage and edify each other, to spur one another on to love and good works, as it says in Hebrews 10. Ministers, these are these people, these freaks who go to seminary and then train to become a pastor so that they can say breasts instead of breath <laughs> of a formal church. And then there's ministers, which is just every one of us who are saved by God and called to carry the message of hope to others. In fact, in Ephesians 4, he said, God gifted the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, and teachers to equip the people for the works of the ministry so that the body of Christ can be built up. I shouldn't be the minister doing all the ministry, nor our staff. You just don't hire guns to do all the ministry that we're supposed to equip the people to do the works of the ministry. We're all ministers. And then praying, for a lot of us, is talking to God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and our hands folded and our words perfect, totally grammatically correct, right? 
But praying is recognizing God's constant presence, practicing his presence, and living with a spirit of conversation with him wherever you go, in the car, out in the woods, at your job, whispering these small little whisper prayers. God, I need you. God, give me wisdom. God, help me to know how to respond. It could be in your mind. It could be with your lips. Prayer doesn't have to be grammatically correct. You don't have to use huge words like, we beseech thee, Lord, by the goodness of your providential wisdom, Lord, to, you know, bestow on us the bounty of your blessing. Lots of bees and alliteration, all this bull. I think God can just look right through all of that stuff and he's like, is your heart with me? Because one thing that is cool about Romans 8, it says he's given us the spirit who intercedes with us, for us, with groans that, that, that we can't even utter. So whatever you say to God, it's probably this side of the holiness of the God. The Holy Spirit's translating everything you say to God Anyhow, so it doesn't matter how good or bad you think it is, he'll translate it so God can understand what your heart really means and wants and thinks. And as we unlearn these faulty models of what the church has turned into over the years and reclaim God's dream for the church in all her original glory, to me, like the sky's the limit of what God's finally unleashed to do in this place with these people, with us. As I was saying, in the context of Acts, we see Paul's migration of how he moved in his mission from places like this to the outside. This is in Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he, he, he got on and he was scrolling Instagram, you know, just kind of past the time, right? No, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue, that would be more of a place like this, with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. It wasn't anything deep. It was like Jesus came, he lived, he died, and then he rose again. That was sort of a new idea, sort of an earth-shattering concept. This is in verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And that is what the church has turned into. That we have copied what philosophers and these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, strange, cool ideas. Let's just get around and do nothing but talk about the latest cool stories and ideas. And that is not what the church was meant to be, is just get around and talk about stuff. It's to get out there after you talk about it and do it. So they invited him in. I, I looked at this and I'm like, he starts in the synagogue where he reasoned with God-fearing people, people who already knew God, Jews and Greeks, and it's they came to him. In this setting, they come to you. Like, I didn't go out today, like, you know, Paul Revere and say, you know, church is at 10 a.m., church is at 10 a.m., and I invited you all here. You just came. 
You knew it was 10 a.m. Most of you kind of already know God. Some of you are on a journey with God. Some of you are exploring God and kind of experimenting with God. And you're, you're just sort of checking out what the claims of Christianity and this Christian thing is. Or maybe you're like, I just want to see the inside of the building. I don't care about all this, you know, faldi and malarkey here. But you came. That's easy. Because in the synagogue or in the church building, they just come to you. But the cool thing is the marketplace. This is day by day, he'd go out into the marketplace and talk to whoever happened to be there. That means things just are happening to you and you can't predict it. And it's not like an order of worship and a worship of order in the church. It's like there's no order of worship. You have no idea what's going to happen. And you're just going to have to think on your feet and say, God, just help me. Give me the words. Give me the wisdom. Help me to know when to talk. Help me to know when to listen. Help me to know how to like bite my tongue. Help me know, to know your heart. And day by day, not just a week end, but a weekday, he was out in the marketplace where people were. And you got to go to them. They're going to come to you. That's the church. The third space is awesome. It's where the philosophers are. This is where they took and brought him into that meeting. This is one you're invited into, that after they see your character and your influence, they invite you into cultural decision-making. This is where you can create the future of culture. Church used to be at the tip of the spear, at the bleeding edge of culture and art and beauty and design and architecture. Christians used to be the greatest artists and thinkers and philosophers that there were. And we've taken a back seat because now we just kind of come to church and hide from the world. We should be out there. So they're inviting us to be on the board at school and they're inviting us to be on the city council because they know our character. They know we're not just gonna like blow our top. They know that we have the fruits of the spirit, not the fruits of the flesh and that we're for the community, not against the community. And they want us to be a part of the conversation. And, and even if we disagree, we're not disagreeable. We're respectful and gentle in our disagreement. And the third space you don't get into unless they invite you to come. And man, do I love being in those places. But you have to live a certain way where they come to you and you go to them for an extended amount of time until they're like, I've watched your life and your witness. I trust you. Can you come and be a part of this conversation? Man, do we need Christians to be in political conversations and local conversations and community conversations, but you don't get into that because you bust through the doors and force yourself upon it. You're invited in. Do you see that in this text? Synagogue, marketplace, culture creators. I was uh, over spring break visiting my nephew who was practicing soccer and they were doing this drill inside of cones it was like a 10 by 10 squared outline grid um, to keep control of the ball and to keep it on the ground as they were collecting it and passing it around there's like four that were passing it around one that was the chaser trying to get it away and the coach walked by and he said this now nah, we're playing soccer boys that's what you call soccer and he'd just walk around, then he'd go to somebody and say, hey, 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 no, 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 keep the ball, keep the ball out of the air, on the ground, collect it, keep control, there you go, now we're playing soccer, boys, that's what you call soccer. And it's not kickball, I'm into soccer, I play collegiate soccer, I know it doesn't look like it. I was an all-American soccer player in college, 
I loved playing soccer. And I was listening to him. I was watching him. And I had to learn this. Because when I was younger and I was playing soccer, the fans don't know what soccer is. They think it's kickball. I still go to soccer games, and whenever a defender just wails and kicks the ball really high and really far, the fans just go wild. And they say things like, boot it, boot it. That's YMCA soccer with magnet ball. The more this matures, the less you want to boot it. And, and I think it's really crazy because good soccer is like a game of little intentional touches and it's less flashy and it's way more nuanced. And I feel the same with the church. It's not, gonna, it's not going to church or building a church as much as it is the church going to the world and being the church. It's not the flashy stuff. It's more the nuanced stuff that happens in the obscure moments of the day-to-day that takes the good news of Jesus and lives it in the everyday world as everyday missionaries. And if I were a coach to that kind of church, I'd say, now we're being the church, ladies and gentlemen. That's what you call the church. That's what you call the church. I just Maybe this is a little too generic and too vague, what I've said so far, but for me, as an individual, like I was at a, a graduation party yesterday, and to me, the visual of I am the temple of the Holy Spirit, the carrier of the Ark of the Covenant, and I'm going to this place, and I'm not gonna get up there and preach, and I don't have my little pulpit or anything like that, but I know who I am, I am God's child and I'm his ambassador and I just want to live in such a way that I respect people and honor them and give them dignity at that party, these strangers that I don't know. And for me, when I go to those places, there, there, are, there are certain steps. Like first, it's what am I sensing around me? And then what am I seeing around me? People that are over here and over here. And when I sense something and I see something, am I stopping? It's sensing, it's seeing, it's stopping, it's asking, it's listening, it's responding, and then it's acting. Everywhere you go, God, what am I sensing? What am I seeing? Am I gonna stop right here? I'm gonna ask a question. Am I gonna listen? Am I gonna respond? Am I gonna act? Sensing, seeing, stopping, asking, listening, responding, acting. It's that out in the world that is so needed. It's rarefied air for somebody to just be present at a place with other people. I wrote a letter of apology. This is back in 2006 to the world. And it was primarily just for being a church of words where we just stay in a building and we're just known to be big talkers. In the letter, I said this, Dear world, it seems contradictory that we are using words to apologize for words, but a letter is long overdue cataloging our disgraceful conduct as a band of people claiming to represent God. For a people so avid about following the word made flesh, we have done a wonderful job of turning him back into words. You must know that it was never supposed to be this way. We were supposed to carry on the legacy of living out our values instead of crafting them into clever acrostics and cheesy marquee signs. 
We know better than to rely on words to convey the deepest mystery of the gospel. We have traded incarnation for information, and you are paying the price for our deliberate disregard of Jesus' teaching to love with action and truth. We have not visited the sick, taken in the stranger, fed the hungry, hugged the unlovely, adopted the orphan, or provided for the poor. We cannot blame anyone but ourselves for this gross disfigurement of God's face in the world. For all the damage we have caused with our empty words and lofty sermons, we humbly seek your forgiveness. Though this simple letter could never make up for the carnage we've caused, I hope it at least demonstrates our deep sorrow for not loving you enough to act on our beliefs. I hope that we can give you more than our word when we say that we will do our best to show our love with our life from this day forward. Again, I'm sorry for the hurt we've caused since the departure of Jesus. He is not to blame for the mess we've made. Sincerely, the church. That just was something I had to get off my chest. And I've given this to various people who are jaded toward the church and skeptical of the church and cynical of the church because I don't blame them. Organized religion has done some crazy things in the name of God. And I think the best posture is, I'm sorry. We want to do better. We want to be like Jesus. From the synagogue to the marketplace, right into conversations where we're talking about things that can change the future. And there's a song written that Cody's, uh, Cody's going to sing, um, which is just a letter to the church and to the world all at the same time. And then I'm going to ask you to close in prayer, brother.
This is a song for the cynical saints, the burned out and hopeless, the ones who cast away. God, we just want to go out in our communities and we just want to love people the best that we can. We want to bring the church to them. God, I pray that our hearts hurt for the people that don't know you. The most amazing and powerful God that I've ever met. God, may our hearts break for those who don't know you. Thank you for this time that we get to gather as one body, as the church, and just to remember that church is out there as we as the body. Thank you so much for loving us. God, we love you and give this time to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. Have a great week. Yo.